0: Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 68, General Bennigsen of the Russian Army. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our listeners that if you'd like to support our podcast, please go to patreon.com forward slash generals and Napoleon for bonus ad-free content. If you'd like to support our podcast in other ways, please go to YouTube and give us a follow, and if you enjoy the content there give us a like now on with the show we have a special guest once again Alexander Mika Baritze joining us from LSU Shreveport one of my favorite guests say hello Alex
1: thank you thank you so much John um i I'm, I'm i'm delighted to be here uh i've told you last time that i guess i'm doing something right that you keep uh, <laughs> getting me back on <laughs> yeah no you
0: you're fantastic and i love having you on my listeners really enjoy all your knowledge on our previous episodes i think we've done let's see we've done alexander kutusov
1: uh Barclay, yeah they yeah and who are we talking about today we're talking uh, about Benningsen. Uh, yes. I think the the black sheep of the <laughs> Russian Napoleonic <laughs> generalship.
0: <laughs> right, right. Because he wasn't Russian; he was from Hanover, right? Exactly. He's
1: yeah. uh, well. In that sense, many of these Russian officers, right, um, are not necessarily ethnic Russians, right? Uh, and Benningsen is certainly one of them. Um, he he hails from Hanover. Uh, he was born. Um, uh, in, in February of 1745 right uh, in, into this family that originally was ha- from Hanover he was born in Brunswick right. uh, but and- his family was noble and like you know all of these senior officers you know nobility was uh, a, 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 an assumed thing
0: right yeah. right and um- We'll, we'll jump into his early childhood in just a moment. Um, and I love talking about Hanoverians. Shout out to the Life and Times of Frederick the Great podcast. I know they love all Hanover people. <laughs> um, but before we do that, I, I know you're um, involved with the Macena Society, and I think my listeners would be interested in what that is. Could you talk briefly on that?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Um, my, uh, this is a society that was established uh, 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 several years ago. Um but it was established initially as a way to promote uh, Napoleonic studies um, and we called it Massena because a lot of us just shared the passion for uh, studying the, the life and, and the exploits uh, and good times of, of Napoleon's uh, marshal uh, Victor Andre Massena right. uh, in the, you know in, in Napoleonic circles, of course, we have a long-standing debate uh about who was the best marshal uh, so right and um, it's interesting you picked Masena. he was
0: like the least educated of all the marshals and he kind of learned on the fly
1: oh i know i i was a uh, i think uh, i was the uh, the black sheep of that society because i was always <laughs> proclaiming davu but they still accepted me <laughs> <laughs> maybe as a, as a token <laughs> right right uh, uh, but um Masada Society is is a, is a society that is um, promoting uh, academic study of Napoleonic era, and the members of it, uh, we we all kind of uh, donate money uh, and then provide uh, scholarships for students, for graduate students to attend conferences, and most crucially, uh, we we offer five uh, doctoral fellowships for wow. PhD candidates to. Do research uh, uh, in archives. Some of that money can go can go for travel. So essentially, um, making sure that this field uh, endures, that, that right. we have new generation coming coming up that, that sustains this research. So I'm, I'm I've been the president of the society for the past um, three years, and I'm, I'm very passionate about this cause.
0: Yeah, it sounds very intriguing. So if I'm a young undergrad in European studies, is there a website I can go to?
1: Yes, if you know um, a student uh, who, who's looking for uh, funding um, uh, his, his research or his or her research, uh, um uh, is our website. And there they can click on the fellowship tab uh, where they will find uh, the call for submissions for this current year, 23-24. Uh, we have, uh, as I said, uh, five fellowships, doctoral fellowships available. Uh, and on top of it, we also will sponsor their trip to one of the national uh, academic uh, conferences, either Society for Military History Conference, which will be in, uh, next year in Arlington or the Consortium on Revolutionary Era, which is the premier organization for um, these Napoleonic uh, period which I actually uh, uh, will be hosting in Baton Rouge in February.
0: Interesting. Okay. So,
1: yeah, thank you for mentioning that. MessinaSociety.org
0: for all those that are interested. Okay. Well, let's jump into General Bennington. As we mentioned, he was born in Hanover to a noble family, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire at the time. Do you know anything about his upbringing?
1: Um, Yes, we we do. Um, You know, I... So Benningsen, as I said he's the black sheep of of the uh, Russian generalship and, and, and that's true in many respects um, one one way is that we still don't have a, a a good biography of him in in Russian or in in English or French or whichever language you choose. so he's he's been largely overlooked. I try to fill that gap by uh, working on a two volume set. Um, of his memoirs. The first volume mm-hmm. came out this year. The second one will be out next year. And it, it, as part of that project, I essentially wrote uh, a, a lengthy uh, article on, uh, describing his biography. Mm-hmm. So when we look at his childhood, we realized that um, Bennington, in many respects, had no choice but to pursue a military career. Mm-hmm. His, his father, his grandfather, uh, they were all military men. And, and himself, um, Bennington in 1805 uh, wrote an interesting kind of reminiscence uh, uh, in, in that he has a lovely quote where, where he says that I've been raised at the camp and grew up to the sounds of gunfire. Because his father had good connection, um, he was serving as a colonel in the guards in Brunswick. Uh, Benningsen was able to uh, get an early start in his career. He's uh, 10 years old when he's appointed as a page at the Hanoverian court. Mm-hmm. And then four years later, just 14 years old, uh, he's commissioned uh, in the Hanoverian food guards. And so mm-hmm. he starts his career at, at what we consider now a teenager, right? Mm-hmm. Um, his baptism by fire is during Seven Years' War, this brutal conflict that will um, involve so many uh, European countries. Uh, and uh, by then, he's already a captain. Uh, and he he established himself as a, as a good, a kind of decent um, officer, a young officer who, who distinguished himself, um, not necessarily distinguished in a way in, in, in enough to earn a, a rapid promotion to uh, a higher ranks, but certainly uh, a, a reputation, a reputation that was uh, strong enough that he was able to marry well, Mm-hmm. Um, he married to uh, Baroness Baroness Steinberg. And then uh, it, it happened so that by the time uh, Seven Years War ended, uh, his father also dies, plus his marriage, which was quite uh, kind of uh, advantageous for, for him, uh, meant that Bennington had enough money to retire.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he right away after the, after the war, he kind of says, that's it. I've done my thing. I've seen the blood and gore. I, I, I know what the war is. Let me now uh, uh, get to my estate, at a uh, lovely estate at Bantone, uh, right in, in near Hanover, and, and I will just uh, live myself my, my, the rest of my life there. Right. Um, and as often happens, um, I guess he was—he uh, <laughs> loved living large. <laughs> right. He got bored at the estates, I guess. Well, yeah. bored, but also he squandered his inheritance. <laughs> oh, no. Um, he squandered—he he squandered that money. His wife. Um, dies, um, you know, this untimely death of his wife also cuts off the um, money that her family was providing. And so uh, Benningsen uh, finds himself kind of compelled to get back into doing the only thing really that he knew how to do, which is the military service. Um, he served briefly in, in Hanover, but realized there was not enough money there. Mm-hmm. And so he looked around and uh, decided to seek a career in Russia.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. it seems like he rose pretty quick through the ranks, but he was noble. Um, And I guess he is real. um, After his unretirement, he fights against the Turks, which seems like there was always battles against the Turks over territory and other things at this time.
1: Um, Yes, um, he arrives in Russia in 1773. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's accepted uh, with the rank of a, a premier major uh, in, in Russian service, uh, sent to uh, uh, the Atka Musketeer Regiment. And, but his first service is actually not against the Turks, but rather against the uh, rebellious peasants uh, as part of that great uprising that Emilian Pugachev organized in 1773-74. Mm-hmm. You know, actually uh, uh, f- serves in the East, in the eastern part of uh, Russian Empire, fights Pugachev's troops. As we all know, the, the uprising was brutally crushed. Pugachev was mm-hmm. captured, brought uh, to St. Petersburg and, and quartered. Uh, and it is during this campaign, which, by the way, was uh, led uh, by, per- by an individual that we'll be discussing, hopefully, at the next uh, in the next episode, the, the famed Russian general Alexander Suvorov. Oh, yeah, I know that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Suvorov notices Benningsen during this campaign, and it is his service against the uh, uh, Pugachev that essentially opens the pathway for uh, Benningson's advancement. And he uh, makes within, just to give you a sense, he comes to uh, Russia in 73, fights for the next year and a half against these peasants. And then he achieves the promotion quickly to uh, a full uh, a major and then uh, lieutenant colonel. Uh, by 79. So within four years, uh, he's already Lieutenant Colonel. Pretty good. Uh, and um, as it, if you know, Russian service is, is weird in, in the sense that, you know, uh, the listeners in, uh, who've uh, uh, listened to us discuss Kutuzov's career know that the officers could be moved from one branch of the uh, military to another. So Kutuzov served in the light cavalry, in the light infantry, in the regular infantry, in staff officers, right? And Benningsen mm-hmm. kind of starts his career as, a, as an infantry officer, but then in 79, he's actually transferred to the light cavalry. Mm. Uh, and there he remains for, for many years, kind of serving. And it is with that light cavalry, uh, Izumsky Light Cavalry Regiment, that he actually participates in the war against the Turks. Mm. Um, once again, finds himself under command of um, uh, Suvorov, now this time fighting in, in the Crimea. In, in the famous siege at Ochakov, uh, and uh, distinguishes himself enough to earn yet another promotion, uh, this time to brigadier general, right. uh, which is not a, not a shabby move since in, in about 15 years, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Since his arrival, he went from a, ma- uh, a major to, to a general. Um, and, and, and this time, um, uh, the 1787, 1788 period, Mm-hmm. It's also um, kind of uh, personal from a personal point of view, Benning uh, Benningson endures yet another heartbreak because uh, he married second time after his wife passed away. He married second time mm-hmm. uh, and his wa- she uh, her, uh, his wife dies in, uh, during childbirth.
2: Uh,
1: so um, uh, he tries to console himself by um, throwing himself yet yet uh, again in another marriage. Uh, mm-hmm. Third one, mm-hmm. and his wife also passed away. Oh my God! In 1789, so within that period, right, about 20 years, he loses three wives. That's awful. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, on the personal level, it could not have but caused uh, kind of uh, a, a depression or kind of a soul searching at the very least. Yeah. Uh, he has a small child, uh, a boy, Adam, uh, who is born in 76. Mm -hmm. Uh, But so in this sense, Bennington has to juggle raising this boy and Mm -hmm. uh, being deployed, uh, you know, on on campaign for long periods of time. Right. Well, um, like you said, he works his way up the ranks.
0: um, And in the 1790s, it seems like he's, uh, you know, doing well again, distinguishing himself on a couple fronts where where's his career kind of leading towards like is he do you think he's going to be in charge of maybe he knows like hey i'm the, I'm the smartest guy here i'm going to work my way all the way to
1: the top <laughs> that's actually this is uh you know kind of one of the ways um i think we need to kind of approach him is maybe to consider how contemporaries perceived him because uh it, it's one thing to kind of look at his career advancement but uh, the contemporaries were uh, rather divided um, on, on, on in, in assessing him. Mm-hmm. Um, Napoleon's um, uh, aide camp, uh, Philippe Segur, actually uh, met Benningsen in December of eighteen o six, right in the midst of that brutal winter campaign,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and he describes him as a pale, withered individual of high stature, cold appearance, with a scar across his face. Mm-hmm. And we know that uh, the French, um, the Russians, um, you know, right people who came across him, all spoke of him as a brave officer, who showed martial prowess, uh, who had the reputation from uh, the, he struggled from against the Ottomans and then in 1790s against the Poles, an officer with, with brave officer with with some uh, ability to lead the regiments, but struggling. Uh, at operational and strategic level. Uh, and I think that is one of the big issues uh, kind of dealing with Russian officers is that many of them are very good attack on tactical level. but mm-hmm. um, They struggle at, a, at the operational and then strategic level. And Bennington is certainly one of them. Even Robert Wilson, uh, the, the British commissioner who was uh, uh, <laughs> uh, attached to the Russian army in 1806 and then in 1812, Right. So Wilson also speaks of Bennington as a. Uh, a, a this is a quote: a "Most gallant and good man in every sense of this word." But then he goes on to observe, and this is a quote, that he was not a great officer. However, an officer in this sense implies that he had difficulty comprehended these grand tactics, right? The great operational maneuvers, mm. that. Oftentimes, he was kind of thrown out of his kind of comfort zone by the fast pace of, of the war.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the, uh, the contemporaries, there is a wonderful memoir that I'm, I'm, I've translated partially, and, and uh, hopefully it will be published later on uh, by a, a Russian officer. Um, Bulgarian uh, has a great description of, of, of Benningsen. So if you indulge me, it's a, it's a nice quote. Sure. So this is what Bulgarian writes in his um, in his uh, memoirs. He was brave and enterprising, but if one considers that his main accomplishments came as a detachment commander against some Polish Confederates, that is rebellious nobility, and some no some small number of regular troops who tended to be inexperienced, poor armed, and led by men with limited understanding of the war. Then Benningson's former successes could not have served as sufficient guarantees of future victories, mm. especially in any war involving such masters as Napoleon. Yet mm. everyone recognized that Benningson had a broad knowledge. Right. That although he had not had a classical education, due to his enlisting in the army at an early age, he had still acquired a thorough understanding of war through reading, thinking and practicing nature created him as a warrior endowed him with a passionate love for the art of war quickness of mind military eye extraordinary courage rare audacity and remarkable composure and i i love how it creates a a portrait of him of a man right yeah Uh, that gives us both his flaws and his his strength yeah and
0: that's an interesting quote. It's, it, that is a nice portrait of the man. transition from that to what is probably the darkest part of his career um, in 1798 he's fired from military service by Tsar Paul I allegedly because of his connections to Platon Zubov. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you take it from there next uh, uh, yeah.
1: well, that is a good um, this is where we get into the area um... it's like a soap opera Oh, yes. I I think so. It certainly would be be a soap opera I would love to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Emperor Paul comes to power in November of 1796 after his mother, Catherine uh, the Great, passes away. And we know that uh, Catherine, um, uh, you you know, had lovers um, and, and her last favorite or kind of last lover was this young gentleman by the name of Platon Zubov.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, and um, Bennington was indeed associated with uh, Zubov brothers so we have two brothers Platon and Valerian and uh, Bennington was involved with the Zubovs especially the the Valerian Zubov and uh, he in fact served under Zubov uh, against the Persians in 1796 so that's the campaign that Catherine started and then uh, Paul, upon coming to power, quickly cancelled and recalled the troops, mm. and so when Benningsen comes back from from the Caucasus, um, he realizes that much has changed in in, in St. Petersburg with the, with this change of the ruler, and mm. that Paul is uh, is keen on bringing order, accountability, and discipline, uh, uh, and and Paul does it in in a very kind of radical way, where he begins a massive purge of a Russian officer corps, which was bloated. Mm -hmm. It had way too many uh, officers serving. It had hundreds of generals when there were jobs for just a few dozen, right? So Mm -hmm. there's a top-heavy officer corps. And, And Paul, rightly so, begins purging it. Having said that, I do want to point out that in any purge, right? when you when you, when you talk about these mass scale firings, there will be individuals who are caught in this purge, in this firing, that uh, whose case should have been probably reconsidered. And there is a way to argue in favor of Benningson by saying that hey, he was a he was a capable officer. But mm-hmm. if we look over his career, right, and and this is where Bulgarian's quote I think helps us, is that if we look at over his career, he he doesn't have that distinguished moment yet, right? Mm-hmm. Who did he fight against? He fought against rebellious peasants led by Pugachev. Then he fought briefly against the Turks. And then he fought against what Bulgarian refers to as the Polish rebellious nobility. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is no no moment where he really shines. Right. That's why in uh, uh, Paul, essentially in October of 1798, fires him. Mm-hmm. Because there are many other uh, officers like Benningson in, in, in the army, and so he's gone.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but of course, from Bennington's point of view, I mean, this is his livelihood. I mean, this he came to Russia in search of job, in search of income, Red. and all that now is, is in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, unsurprisingly, um, two years later, uh, Benningson joins a conspiracy against the czar, and not just joins, right, but rather he actually... Um, is is, is is one of the leaders of this conspiracy. Yeah, he's a leading figure in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for it is because he has this reputation for audacity and courage. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to tr- try to kill uh, a divinely blessed monarch, yeah. <laughs> you'll need a lot of audacity. Yeah, um, you better go 100%. No, that's, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and so shortly after midnight on March 24, um, 1801, uh, Emperor Paul had a lovely dinner attended by Kutuzov and others. When he retires that night to his bedroom, a group of about 60 officers led by Zubov brothers, uh, led by uh, the uh, um, chief of police uh, Mm -hmm. of St. Petersburg, uh, led by local kind of governor, and by Benningsen, uh, quietly enter the royal residence, uh, it's a lovely castle that Paul actually built in order to to be better protected. Mm-hmm. Ironic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Interestingly, uh, that night, as they were preparing for this conspiracy, a young men who were involved in it are kind of getting jittery and uh, and and concerned. And Benningsen finds a solution for their uh, for their uh, anxiety. He gives them alcohol, right? <laughs> Fortifies them with alcohol. Yeah, uh, steal their courage. Uh, that's yeah. right right you need that courage courage and oftentimes we know what <laughs> once we consume alcohol we do some silly things yeah uh, but even then um as these officers enter the palace at, at uh, and they start searching for um, uh for the emperor they go into his bedroom and they found it empty mm. so imagine that panic
2: right? yeah
1: here they are inside the palace the that's it the 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 they cross that line, right? They yeah. cross the Rubicon. They cross, yeah, Rubicon. <laughs> is right. uh, and, and the emperor is nowhere to be found. And so they are standing in this room, all panicking. Some of mm-hmm. them are already kind of bewailing, crying. They're like, that's it. The emperor probably realized we were coming and we will be all arrested and executed for treason. When Benningsen kind of goes around and grabs them by, you know, by the uniform and shakes them and he famously says, the wine has been poured. We all must drink it now.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. That's it,
1: right? We yep. cannot go back.
0: That's a great line.
1: And so they search the room a bit better. And that's when they notice Tsar's little feet sticking out <laughs> behind the curtains mm-hmm. in the corner of the room. They dragged the, uh, the emperor out, demanded that he sign the document of abdication. He refused. And then we have a scuffle in which Paul is badly beaten. Mm-hmm. several men overpower him. Some bang his head on the floor, others threw a sash around his neck and strangled him. Mm. What Benningson did exactly inside that room remains to be kind of uh, un- unclear. Yeah. But the fact that he was in the room, right, he was one of the leaders of it. and yet, this murder, right, pay, paved the way for Paul's son, Emperor Alexander, to come to power. And despite his role in the conspiracy, Benningsen's career did not suffer under this new emperor.
0: Yeah, it's almost this is made better. Like mm-hmm. he got his job back and, and, and goes through the ranks. like he rises. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, the assassination takes place in March. And in July, uh, um, the new emperor appoints Benningsen military governor of Vilna, uh, modern day Vilnius. Uh, essentially the governor general or military governor of of Lithuania,
0: and Mm -hmm.
1: then uh, uh, gives him also the position of the inspector of Lithuanian inspection, which uh, was like a division, administrative division of the Russian army. Uh, Furthermore, within a year of the assassination, Benningsen is promoted to a full general, and his seniority is backdated uh, to three years earlier, so effectively, Mm Uh, Alexander negates the firing, negates all the time that Benningson lost uh, uh, in, in being uh, unemployed. So that mm-hmm. is to me is a really interesting uh, uh, way for Alexander to navigate this le- pol- political kind of military labyrinth uh, in the wake of the assassination of his father. But he, he uh, exiles some of the leaders who were in conspiracy. But he understands that he needs also men like Bennigsen, so he keeps him around.
0: Right. By this time, Napoleon's first council in 1804, 1805, he's emperor and he's kind of moving his armies across uh, Europe. You know, he beats the Austrians and Russians in 1805 at uh, Austerlitz, the Prussians in 1806. But the Prussians don't surrender immediately, and Russia is there helping the Prussians. What kind of happens?
1: How does uh, uh, Benningsen get command of the army at Pultusk? Um, so in 1805, when the war began, the War of Third Coalition, uh, Russia mobilized several armies mm-hmm. for, for the struggle against N- Napoleon. We usually concentrate on the army of Podolia that Kutuzov commanded, and that's the one that marched all the way to Bavaria and then uh, discovered that Austrians were destroyed at Ulm, turned and, and retreated to and then rallied, right, and and Mm. fought Austerlitz. Mm. But in addition to that army, uh, Russians prepared um, two other armies, including the so-called Army of the North of about 50,000 men. uh, That was commanded by Benningsen. Mm. And that army was supposed to kind of nudge the Prussians out of neutrality. If you read letters that Alexander, Emperor Alexander, writes to Benningsen, he essentially says, "Hey, you got a demand from Prussians the right to to pass through their territory, because that will have kind of will will force them to do something. They will either allow us to pass, and therefore you will be able to help us fight against Napoleon, or they will refuse, and then you have." To, uh, he actually gives uh, Benningsen the right to forcibly. Uh, kind of go through. So essentially, um, Benningsen's task was to bring pressure on 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 Prussians. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that did not happen. Um, uh, kind of, Benningsen was unable to join the war uh, because, as we know, um, Alexander went to Berlin, uh, negotiated with Frederick William of, of Prussia, and the agreement was that they will first offer Napoleon a mediation, Prussian mediation. Uh, and, and then if Napoleon refused, then Prussia will join the war and let Benningsen's army pass through. Mm-hmm. And, and we know that uh, the, the mediator, the, the Prussian envoy, arrived uh, to Austerlitz uh, the day, essentially the day after the battle. Uh, so by that time, Russian and Austrians are already destroyed. And, and therefore, there is not much to mediate. So... Uh, Benningsen remains, therefore, in charge of the army that already been gathered between uh, uh, Tarogen and Grodnos, or what is today Lithuania. Mm-hmm. And um, he stayed there until 18, late 1806, when the War of the Fourth Coalition began. Uh, and uh, uh, Russia was supposed to support Prussians. Mm-hmm. You know that the, the war started uh, too, you know, really rapidly. The events unfolded. At a, at a pace that no one expected, uh, the war begins on October eight, and by October fourteen, Napoleon r- destroys the Prussian army. So the Russians were simply um, unprepared for that uh, kind of rapid turn of events.
2: Mm-hmm. It
1: means that by the time the uh, uh, Prussians were destroyed, Benningsen was still uh, on on the border uh, on the border of Russian Empire. Mm-hmm. Now, by this time, the, the army that he had has been reorganized into two cores, two strong cores. Mm-hmm. One is commanded by Benningsen, and the other one is given by uh, a, a General uh, Friedrich Wilhelm von Buxhovden of, of Swedish mm-hmm. ancestry. Mm-hmm. And so here, then, uh, Alexander sends Benningsen and Buxhovden to kind of help what's left of Prussia resist Napoleon. Uh, but there are problems. One problem is that Napoleon is moving too fast for the Russians. So Mm -hmm. even even while Russians are passing through what used to be Polish countryside, uh, Napoleon already has taken Berlin Mm
2: -hmm. uh,
1: and is actually by late November in the former Polish capital of Warsaw. So Russians are simply confronted by the fact that Napoleon's speed is, is is too great for them to match. Mm-hmm. But more crucially, there is confusion. There's disorder within the Russian army because Benningsen and Buksov really don't like each other. Right. So they have on the personal level animosity, but there is also professional rivalry. There are questions of seniority in in, in any military. We, you know, the seniority matters, and of mm-hmm. course, here we deal with individuals who, on top of seniority, there are matters of noble kind of ancestry, kind of personal yeah. status, ego, status, ego. Yeah. exactly. Huh? Yeah. Um, and so because we have two cores and they're kind of independent cores, uh, neither of them are willing to listen to the other. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, Alexander, uh, Emperor Alexander, fails to appoint an overall commander. So you would say, what? why, right? Yeah. And uh, as as a contemporary officer, and actually very uh, very interesting officer, uh, Constantine Bankendorf, who wrote one of the most fascinating memoirs of this time, uh, remarked in his di- in his kind of diary memoir, he says it was difficult to find a commander in chief. And I think sometimes people are surprised, why would it be difficult to find? Mm. Well, uh, this the obvious choice, let's say, for the commander in chief uh, Kutuzov, the the man who commanded uh, the Russian army in the last war against Napoleon, the men who uh, properly and correctly assessed the way to fight Napoleon, only to be ignored and overruled by the Tsar. Well, that man is in disgrace, right? Right. Alexander is unwilling to give him a second chance. Um, If you look at the uh, remaining generals, most of them are, um, um, are... junior in rank is in terms of seniority two books of them and Benningson mm-hmm. and so uh, uh, Alexander could have appointed one of them but he instead chose and I still struggle to kind of understand why he went with this choice he instead decided to recall from uh, from uh, retirement uh, Mikhail Kaminsky right and Kaminsky I mean, here we talk about uh, a, a man who is uh, nearly 70 years old. The last funny. time he fought was in seven years war. Yeah. I mean, yeah. much has happened since seven years of war. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: and, and he's mentally unstable, as we find out later. Exactly. He's, he's senile. I mean, yeah. he's in poor health. It's, in fact, if you read his own letters, comments, his letters to the Tsar, he yeah. writes things like, this is a quote, I almost completely lost my vision and, and, and I am unable to find any places on the map. I mean, no. that in itself should have been a red flag to the czar. Like, <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> who am I sending?
1: He can't even read the map. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, immediately he realizes that, I mean, this is more that he's uh, signed up for. I mean, the pace yeah. of the war is different. Yeah. The, the challenges, logistical challenges are at the level that he's unaccustomed to. And remember, he has been in retirement for the past decade, right. more than a decade. So he's he's yeah. not used to these challenges. Yeah, warfare has changed absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so he does the best next, the next best thing, and that is he quits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Less than a week after
0: arriving, he quits. Probably a good thing that he did. <laughs> <laughs> so, the pull test battle, and you know, obviously we have ILO coming up, but. They they do all right there. Marshal Lahn, who's one of Napoleon's best, uh, wins the battle, but it's it's not a a rout of any kind.
1: Um, so uh, you your francophilia is screaming, my friend. <laughs> 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 what do you mean he won, <laughs> he won the battle? He won the battle. Yeah. Um, right. certainly disagrees with you, okay? Uh, because Benningsen claimed both of these battles as as Russian victories um, because they retained control of the battlefield until they decided to leave, right? Right. And I think that's where, uh, from the Russian perspective, uh, French were on that attackers. All their tanks were rebuffed. Uh, They retained the control of the field and then chose to leave it and retreat, right? And this is where we can get into the long debate whether control of the battlefield is the sufficient grounds for claiming victory or not. But as far as Russians were concerned, certainly uh, at this time in December and January, December of 1806 and December uh, January of 1807. And even later, they all considered Pultusk uh, and Glyman as bloody battles, but ones that they did well. That okay. These were not uh, defeats by, by, uh, by far. All right. but, but that, of course, uh, the problem is that they're fighting in an area that is um, poor, that lacks roads. Then, horrible weather, uh, right. yeah. It's a horrible weather. That's right. It's yeah. a win- It's a December, January. Uh, it's a f- uh, winter, high snow, cold, uh, and that means the logistical system essentially implodes on both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and by the time we get to February, uh, both French and the Russians have suffered enough from from this war, uh, 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 but they fight the decisive battle right at Priseilau. Uh, which is a, a two-day battle so on, on February 7th and eight, And I would go and say that it's not really a battle. It's a bloodbath. I yeah. Mean, it's... Uh, and, and I'll give
0: you that one. That one was a draw. Um, Napoleon... <laughs> <laughs> you, you you, you're seeing the light here. <laughs> yeah, I've seen the light on that one. Um, and Napoleon probably would have lost. His center was caving in. He was only saved by Marshal Murat's cavalry charge. Um,
1: um Napoleon's gonna um, l- let me now play your your side of it um, yeah. uh, of course the, the French have a, ch- uh, uh, a big of a challenge in this battle because uh, they are they're attacking a side that has dug in right mm-hmm. so it's not that Bennington is fight fights a rather imaginative battle it, it's not for Benningson's point of view it's a battle of attrition he digs in and he ho- tries to hold off the uh, the uh, Kind of uh, repetitive uh, uh, series of attacks by the French, uh, and uh, we know that uh, in that sense Napoleon made the mistake of launching those straight-on attacks. It didn't help that we have a blizzard. We know what happens to Ogero's corps, right, mm-hmm. uh, which marches in in uh, through the blizzard towards the Russian positions, uh, lost its way and uh, stumbles upon the main battery that and uh, set up in the middle of his position, which obliterates Augereau's uh, corps in a matter of about fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the corps is largely destroyed. Uh, uh, it, but uh, by the end of the battle, Bennigsen is convinced that he was able to rebuff rebuff Napoleon. Napoleon himself. So unlike Pultusk or Gulemin, where we talk about one of Napoleon's subordinates, right, one of the marshals or generals, here we talk about Napoleon himself in charge and. Considering the previous, essentially, what, uh, eight years of Napoleon's success. right? Mm-hmm. think of uh, Lodi, Rivoli, Austerlitz, Jena, right? And then to be able to stop him. Right. I think was of, of such uh, elation, certainly for Bennington, that he writes that famous report in which he says, we won. Yeah. We, we defeated him. Uh, we captured prisoners. We captured 12 Flags uh Alexander uh, Emperor Alexander is astonished he's I mean he's just jubilant he asks for those twelve flags to be delivered and Benningson says we mis- we misplaced <laughs> <laughs> them <That's laughs> who, who hasn't done that John yeah <laughs> But but but, keep, the, you know, but the news was still celebrated, right? Uh, yeah. Never mind right. that the flags were not never produced. They were like, let's celebrate it anyways. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: And and he's awarded the Order of Saint Andrew, the highest order in the Russian Empire, and <laughs> things are looking good for Bennington, um until a few months later.
1: Well, um, y- yes, you, you're right, but I do want to point that Alao. Is a bloodbath, right? It is, yeah. To borrow sure. from um, Ney, right? He says, yeah. "What a massacre!" Right? Yeah,
0: I mean, without says,
1: result. Yeah, right? and then yeah. uh, there is another uh, uh, eyewitness who, who says, "What a horrible butchery of men this was." Yes. was yeah, uh, Jean Baptiste Barret, uh, a, a participant on the French side, and the 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 extent to which the Russian army suffered, right? And the Benningson's Kind of unimaginative uh, orders, both before, during, and after the battle, meant that there are a lot of senior Russian officers who are not happy with him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: To the extent that one of them actually challenges him to a duel.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: Robert Wilson, the the, the man I, l- I mentioned a few minutes ago, the British commissioner, actually writes a letter at this time, uh, in uh, three days after the battle, uh, he writes a letter. Uh, and he says, and this is a quote, Benningson is, is unpopular in the army. His enemies do not form their opinion from a due appreciation of his qualities, but they are hurried into prejudice by the false feeling that their national glory has been obscured by mm-hmm. this mismanagement that they accuse uh, uh, Benningson of. Uh, Benningson uh, actually writes a letter to Alexander, tries to respond to these accusations. And he offers to resign his command. Alexander says, "No, no, stay, stay in charge. You know, we, we need you." Mm-hmm. Uh, but that the kind of the feeling, of the animosity remains, and especially this is true about uh, uh, his uh, Benningson's relationship with one of the uh, commanders uh, by the name of uh, Austin Sacken. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Austin Sacken can't stand Benningson, uh, and that becomes a, a, an important issue when the campaign uh, resumes in late spring, right? We know that after A. Lau, there was a a, a lull in the campaign. And then uh, in late May, uh, Benningsen thinks he has a chance to defeat Napoleon's army. He looks at the uh, scout reports, and he realizes that Marshal Ney's corps is Isolated or he looks like it, it looks like it's isolated near Gutstadt. Mm-hmm. And so he tries to destroy Ney's core by this kind of coordinating a multi-column assault on, on, on Ney. Mm-hmm. And the plan, and I've looked at it many, you know, m- many times and kind of try to reason it's not a good plan. And again, this <laughs> is where we we can kind of hold him responsible. Right. But it's also that uh, Some of the column commanders are also responsible for uh, uh, for not doing their best Mm -hmm. to fulfill this plan. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, one of them, this Austin Sacken, the guy who you know really disliked Benningson, is given a a crucial task of leading one of the striking columns, and he arrives too late. So, Austin Sacken claims that he was was facing logistical challenges—right, poor road, transport to carry, and all—but was it also kind of deliberate? way for him to undermine an operation that would result in removal of his rival right? uh, that my, my gut feeling is that maybe, but I don't have the clear evidence for it, but in any case this operation at Gutstadt is a failure yeah, May's corps fights brilliantly, organizes this fighting retreat, in fact for those of you who are interested, look at this operation as a good example of what Napoleonic core system is capable of Right.
0: And, and Ney was probably
1: one of the best on defense that Napoleon had. That's right. Um, and so he's able to organize fighting retreat, crosses the Pasarga River, uh, buys enough time for Napoleon to swing at the action. Um, you know, this battalion Carré, this massive you know, rest of the army swings by. And Benningsen now confronted with the fact that he needs to fight Napoleon at the positions that were not necessarily good for him. So mm-hmm. he tries to retreat. So he retreats from Gutstadt to Heilsberg, where they fight a battle uh, on, on June 10. And once again, it's not an imaginative battle.
0: Oh, it's uh, bloodbath, so, another one.
1: That's right. Benningsen even digs in deeper than Hedalau. He actually builds uh, a dozen earthworks, kind of small fortifications, uh, that where his troops are holding ground against these repeated attacks by the French. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here what we realize is that uh, by, by the time he's finding Heilsberg, we see the pressure, um, the, the physical toll of the campaign uh, really exhausting Benningsen. And we know that he's suffering from a kidney uh, problems. Um, he probably hasn't slept in days, right? And all that does affect him. Uh, and the reason I'm mentioning this is because in um, uh, when we get... Right, Guttad is... Oh, sorry, Heilsberg is forward on June 10. They retreat from Gutstadt, sorry, Heilsberg towards uh, a small town called Friedland. Friedland. When they get to Friedland, Benningsen is utterly exhausted. And so he wants to rest. Right. He makes that fateful mistake of moving the army across the river, right, from the eastern side of the river to the western side, so he can stay inside the city. And it is while in the city that he receives the news. There is a French unit close enough. And so he decides to kind of uh, score a quick victory. Because yeah, Mar- no Heilsberg Marshall- is anything but victory.
0: Yeah, Marshall advance uh, advanced boy. Yeah, And so he,
1: he wants something to write about to the Tsar and saying, hey, don't worry about Heilsberg. We were not defeated and we were not defeated because, hey, here we have enough, you know, we fought a battle at Friedland, and we won. <laughs> and so he sends the troops to engage Lund and, and the rest and- is history. Right, and I know as little about military tactics as
0: anyone, but I do know that you should never fight a battle with the river at your back.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And especially, not, not, I mean, you can fight maybe with the river in the back if you have enough bridges, but if you only have <laughs> one permanent bridge and uh, uh, several pontoon bridges mm-hmm. uh, for an army of that size, yeah, that's a big problem. And, and other officers realized it, and they cautioned Benningsen, but he, as I mentioned, he was convinced that this will be a, a quick in and out.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, and it was anything, and again, this is a, a clear example of the of the superiority of the French system, because as we know, Lan held ground. Napoleon arrives in the afternoon with the rest of his army and pounces on on Bennington's uh, um, troops. And by the end of the day, uh, the battle is a decisive victory for, right. uh, for the French. So Bennigsen stays uh, in command and through the summer mm. but after that kind of series of knockout punches that he, he he took on his chin it's it's hard to justify his employment so right. uh, while others are given you know uh, command of the armies in in finland or against the turks Benningsen stays largely unemployed for the next few years but that uh, from a from a historian's point of view that is a great advantage because from 1807 to 1812, while at his home, while recovering from the physical exhaustion and all the impact of the career, of this campaign, uh, Benningson was determined to explain his decisions, mm-hmm. in order to explain his side of the story, and he therefore he wrote a series of long letters to his best friend, General mm-hmm. Alexander von Falk, and in those letters he kind of gives his vision, his view, his side. And those letters effectively form um, a memoir of this campaign, which fortunately for your readers, I've translated and it's now available in English. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I've, and I was looking at that, the memoirs,
0: are, are they like General Mac, or Marshall McDonald's where they're kind of inflating his importance and beautifying the facts or you think they're pretty accurate?
1: I think um, there is, I mean, there are all these memoirs and certainly in Benix's case are self-serving, right? They're Mm -hmm. trying to explain in a a good way, in the best way possible, the decisions they made. Mm -hmm. So yes, that we should always bear in mind that all of this is self-serving. But what I like about his memoirs is is two things. One is he tries to rationalize his decision-making and I think it's an important way of kind of getting an insight into how a commander makes decisions. Mm -hmm. But the second important thing is that uh, we know that during this campaign, uh, Russians captured a lot of French correspondents, and especially Marshal Ney's corps was usually the the victim of it. Mm -hmm. And Benningsen incorporates dozens of Ney's letters and and letters he receives from Napoleon and Berthier. In oh, his memoirs. So, this yeah. is another way to look at his this source is that it's not just Benningsen's vision of view of the side of it, but it's also the French side through captured correspondence.
0: Right. That's interesting. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll come back to those memoirs in a bit on his legacy. Um, as you said, he's somewhat retiring, recovering until 1812, uh, where Napoleon up, uh, famously invades Russia. He's present at the huge battle of Bordino you know, outside of Moscow. And then after the French capture Moscow, he's involved uh, with defeating Murat at the engagement of Tarantino. I do want to talk about his quarrel
1: with Kutusov, who was the commander-in-chief. Do you want to touch base on that? Oh, yes. Um, so Bennigsen is unemployed when the war begins. Mm-hmm. So and, and, and actually... Uh, on that night when the french crossed the river and invaded uh, russia benningsen was hosting this remarkable ball this it this kind of a, a, a great dinner at his uh, lovely state on the outskirts of vilna in fact in the state that one contemporary um, described as the small versailles <laughs> and it is there while celebrating that the news arrived that the war has started right and yet benningsen is unemployed it is only later when the Russians are already at Smolensk where, that Alexander decides to kind of shake up the leadership mm. right? and he appoints my guy, uh, General Kutuzov as the commander in chief of all Russian armies. So right. not just the two armies that are at Smolensk, but all Russian armies and then sends Benningsen as the, his chief of staff. Here, the relationship between these two men is, is fascinating on one hand, They've known each other for many, many, many years. Right. Right? They've served together against the Turks. So they've known each other for the better part of 30-plus years. Uh, they know each other, kind of, they spend time with, uh, with each other's families. Mm-hmm. I've looked at the uh, Kutuzov's uh, kind of letters to his wife, his wife's uh, letters back, and it, it's clear that uh, they enjoyed his company. Uh, but then when the war in, uh, begins in 1812 and Benningsen arrives, they disagree on the strategy. Mm -hmm. Benningson wanted to a more forceful confrontation, kind of stand the ground and fight. And Kutuzov was more methodical. I mean, this is all through his entire career. He always talked about the need for uh, a kind of contemplation for need for a a rational assessment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, Kutuzov wanted this prolonged war of attrition. Right. And the two men disagreed, and Benningsen openly intrigued to have Kutuzov removed from power.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that kind of soured, really soured the relationship. Um, and if, kind of, it's heartbreaking to really re- look at the letters that Kutuzov is writing in the fall of 1812, where increasingly you see their friendship crumbling. Mm-hmm. And, and Kutuzov increasingly looks at Benningsen not as a friend and kind of uh, a professional rival, but now as an enemy. Right, and so in in uh, in late fall, Kutuzov simply removes him from power, sends him uh, uh, packing from the army,
2: mm. uh,
1: and so that's where kind of the, the, the two men uh, part their ways. Uh, Benningson will make a comeback in December of eighteen twelve when Kutuzov actually wins the war, brings the army to the border. Right. they're celebrating in Vilna, and Kutuzov realizes that Tsar wants to take all the credit. Uh, the Zal comes to Vilnius, yeah. uh, sidelines Kutuzov and replaces all of his men with men of his choosing. And one of these men is Benningsen.
0: Right. So, now,
1: course, uh, Kutuzov then let, you know dies soon enough, you know, right. gets sick, and, and, and the relationship was never healed.
0: Yeah, that's unfortunate after all those years. Um, but Benningsen is recalled and placed at the head of an army and participates in the battles of Bautzen and Lutzen during the German War of Liberation. Uh, those don't go very well.
1: Um, no, but notice what is the army that Benningsen is given. And I think this is where that the quote that I use from Bulgarian, right, in terms of kind of limitations that Benningsen had, is mm-hmm. worth kind of bearing in mind that Benningsen is given the army that is kind of reserve army. Mm-hmm. So it is not the army that Barclay de Tolly is given, it's not the army that Blucher is, right, leading. Bennington is kept in the second tier. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it is, it's his memory of uh, his underperformance in 1806, 1807. Uh, uh, let me quote um, Alexandre Langeron, a, a really capable general yes. who serves with Bannington in 1813. And so Langeron, and he, you know, uh, his memoirs are available in French. So I, I encourage uh, your listeners to read them. Uh, he, he has a, a lengthy passage on Bannington. And from that passage, I I'll I will just cite a couple of uh, interesting moments. Langeron thought that Benningson was, quote, an excellent general, but weak when in charge, for he knew nothing of how to make himself obeyed or how to repress intrigues that were taking place inside the headquarters. Mm-hmm. And so here again, Benningsen is confronted with, you know, uh, challenges, challenges of conducting a war of dealing with the officers who are increasingly uh, kind of critical of him um, and um, therefore he's kept in uh, kind of more on on, on on the second on the second line mm-hmm. um, so he we can't say that 1813 is uh, is a great uh, campaign for him mm-hmm. look what he's kind of the hallmark of this campaign is that the fact that he served uh, at Hamburg isn't it
0: yeah and, and Leipzig too he was there as well mm-hmm. Um but yeah, the Siege of Hamburg, let's touch on that um, briefly. Uh, Napoleon's pulling back, but he wants to have strongholds uh, throughout Europe when I guess he thinks he's going to defeat the Allied Army so he can go back to Hamburg, which he leaves under Marshal Davout, who is probably, if not the be- one of the best, but the best marshals that he has. And this turns into a year-long siege uh, that Benningsen is up against one of the best. Um, do you think that's, I guess it's not a, it's a victory overall, but do you think it, it was a setback for Bennington that he didn't capture it sooner? Um, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh <laughs> Debut holds it even after Napoleon's downfall, he, he refuses to let go. Exactly.
1: Of <laughs> so it's not that Benningson necessarily defeated him. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, and then that is again, um, uh, from Benningson's point of view, of course, he would have loved to be part of the army of invasion in France. He would have loved to be part of the, you know, force that was fighting on the plains of Champagne, uh, you know, taking Paris, and all those generals were raking in, right, the rewards and promotions and orders. And here he is, stuck in Hamburg on this prolonged siege where he's not making any headway. So by the end of it, I I think he's he's quite chagrined. He's quite saddened.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And so. uh, he retires uh, almost uh, as soon as the war is over. He stays kind of in, in different commands until 1818.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: he retires and spends the rest of his life um, at his estate. He actually leaves Russia mm-hmm. um, and, um, and, and and goes to his Hanoverian estate at Bantel. Um, but unfortunately, the, these last few years of his life were kind of sh- uh, sad and poignant because he suffers from ailments. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, went blind, and I think, and and, and he essentially, um, you know, spent this these last few months in in, in miserable uh, state.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he passes in it's um, like eighteen twenty six, eight years after he really retired. What do you think the legacy is? Because like, I just did a Twitter poll to see. Who who everyone thought the best commander of the Russian in the Russian army was during the Napoleonic times. He's, he's up there, but I don't is he the best or what do you think his legacy is?
1: Um, his legacy is that um, I think he had the misfortune of facing Napoleon. Right, if he had uh, fought in in a different campaign, uh, maybe against the uh, Ottomans, where he is actually commanding an army. Or, like Kutuzov did, like ben Bogration did, like Suvorov did, mm-hmm. I think his uh, reputation would have been far bigger than it is. Mm-hmm. But the the great kind of moment of his career is, of course, 1806, 1807. Mm-hmm. And there, on one hand, he performs well, right? He's not crushed like Prussians are in 1806, he's not crushed like Austrians are in, uh, at, at Marengo or at. at Uh, or it oscillates but it is that you know Eilau is the bloodbath and there's not much to show from a commander's point of view right? there's not much ingenuity shown there and of course the catastrophic mistake he makes at Fridland uh, costs Russian army thousands of casualties Mm -hmm. where I look at him more as a middle of the way kind of guy right? capable Mm -hmm. on the tactical level Probably you need you want him as a as a uh, in charge of a corps, but mm-hmm. nowhere near the command of an army, nowhere near the uh, com- uh, kind of uh, uh, decision making on a strategic level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he certainly had
0: bravery and courage, um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a up and down career and and, and personal life as well. Um,
1: and here's the thing: um, the contemporaries um, knew that, and there's the lovely quote from one of the memoirs um, that. And this is, uh, if I'm again, uh, uh, I need to remember it properly, but I think the the quote says that Benningsen nurtured inordinate ambition within himself. Mm. And that ambition, I think, oftentimes got the best of him. Mm. And that is especially true in 1812, right? That it is that ambition that he could do things better than Kutuzov that burns him. Right. If he had stayed on the better side of Kutuzov, he might have. Done better, uh, and I think the best example of it is the events at, at Tarutino, or the Battle of Inkovo, as, as it is known in the French historiography, where the uh, a, a falling out between Kutuzov and Benningsen results in 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 a partial success. Mm-hmm. Right. Benningsen wants an all-out attack. Kutuzov refuses to support it because he fears that it might. Uh, Caused Napoleon to leave Moscow and prematurely. Right. As I said, Kutuzov has this vision of a more a war of attrition, a strategic view. Mm. Benningson wants a local success. He wants to hammer Murat and kind of defeat him. Right. And Kutuzov tries to argue that that small victory that can be gained at Tarutino is not worth it if it will force Napoleon to leave too early. Right. Uh, right actually organizes a group of officers and force Kutuzov into action, mm. but Kutuzov then does the half-hearted support. Mm. So at the crucial moment when Benningson asks for reinforcements, Kutuzov stands his foot down, refuses to commit, and Murat gets away. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 we were talking about that at, at Friedland and, and
0: Isla, like when Benningson's subordinates are... Basically, not doing what he wants. He's now the subordinate, not doing what Katusa wants. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, right. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I recommend my listeners check out uh, the memoirs of Bennington, right? I, I think that's good learning right there. Uh, Absolutely.
1: Really- um, the volume one, the Confronting Napoleon, um, is already available, and um, I'm almost done uh, editing the second volume. Uh, I think it offers a really uh, kind of good insight into this campaign, uh, especially if you do wargaming, if you do kind of reenactment of this campaign. Uh, Benningsen has many interesting insights to offer.
0: Indeed. Well, thank you, my friend, for joining the show once again. If you guys want to follow Alex on Twitter, a Baritze on Twitter, and um, his books or anywhere books are sold. Uh, I recommend any of his books. They're fascinating. And uh, it was good to you back on the show, my friend.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to talking to you again.